0: On Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm her mom, Pam. And Halloween is over. It's November. You know what that means? It's cold. No, it means it's time to put up the Christmas decorations. Yeah, okay, you, you have fun with that. I'm not ready yet. I've been ready.
1: I put up my two turkey Thanksgiving decorations. Well, there you go.
0: So did you get any trick-or-treaters?
1: A few. We did. It was so cold.
0: But yep, it was
1: fun. How about you? We had a lot. Like hundreds.
0: Yeah, that's very typical, though. But we had, um, I'll have to post a picture of this on our socials. So my daughter was Skye from Paw Patrol. And then we decided that Carl was going to be Marshall, who's one of the Paw Patrol. So we, well, I decorated a white t-shirt that I had with Sharpie and drew a picture of Marshall and did a little blurb that said, I'm okay because he's the clumsy one. Poor Carl. I don't even know how Marshall is a hero on Paw Patrol. He's always tripping over something or doing something. I'm okay. So Apropos for Carl. Yeah, I guess it fits, but we'll post a picture of that. Well, that was a cheap Halloween costume. It sure was. It was free. I already had the Sharpie. I already had the white T-shirt. I already had the Carl. All right. It worked out. And the teenager, what did she go as? Um, she was an '80s rocker. It was a last-minute costume that we put together. Actually, came out of my closet for the most part. Mm, so she was. Did she look like Grand Pam Back in the day, I guess so. She had the bandana, the leather jacket, the black boots. Okay. The aviators. All right. Yep. A little Madonna-esque. Yeah. Nice. She told someone at her school that she was joe elliott (laughs) because she wore an i love london shirt that used to be mine so she could have passed as joe elliott all right well she's my girl we have our spot of tea together
1: in the afternoons oh yeah so what did you get a lot of we had through the few people that we had a lot of wednesdays wednesday adams
0: okay Mm -hmm. that was a popular one this year I can't remember what we got, but my favorite one that will stick with me forever. So it was this kid that took a cardboard box and he turned himself into Whack-A-Me, not Whack-A-Mole, whack a mm-hmm. So his head popped through the top of the box. He attached like a black bopper. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to, you know, you bop the moles. And he printed out pictures of his face and stuck them on the cardboard box.
1: Okay. And that took he had lights. Some
0: yeah. It, it, he had to have found that on Pinterest or his mom or something. Uh, but yeah, he had lights on it too. So it lit up like a game. And after I gave this kid candy, he told me I got four wax. So I got to bop him on the head four times. It was the best. Okay. Well, I guess
1: 411 kids will be at your house later. Yeah, they might be. My favorite was uh, one of our neighbors dressed as the other neighbors (laughs) they had no idea and you know there's a uniqueness about them and it was hilarious and they loved it it wasn't behind their backs or anything it was just absolutely hilarious that's actually a good idea Mm -hmm. it was Jim's
0: store let me just put it that way that's who they dressed as oh goodness (laughs) I know what you're talking about it was great that's fun All right. Well, you ready to get into our story today? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Today, we would like to introduce you to Betty and Jack Wilson, an attractive, wealthy, and sociable couple in Huntsville, Alabama. The pair were married for 14 years, with each bringing three children from their previous marriages into the relationship. Brady Bunch style. Oh yeah, absolutely. Jack was a kind and successful ophthalmologist from Chicago who made a habit of giving away his services for free to those who struggled to make ends meet. Jack even prayed with his patients before surgery. He and Betty met when Jack was receiving kidney dialysis on the floor of Huntsville's Humana Hospital, where Betty worked as a nurse. He was a lot of fun to be around, and Betty took to his sense of humor quickly. There wasn't any opportunity Jack left to make a joke. Even his will ended with, quote, To be used only if absolutely necessary, i.e., if I am dead try real hard to revive me if I only look dead, unquote. That's funny. Jack sounds like a pretty amazing man. Betty once wrote about Jack, quote, It would have been hard not to have noticed him. He reminded me of a little boy with an impish smile on his face all the time. He was one of the kindest people I had ever met, and regardless of how busy he was, he always had time to stop and talk, unquote. The two barely made it through their second date before realizing they were meant to be together. They even made a long-distance relationship work for a time when Betty got an impressive job complete with a decked-out executive office in Atlanta. They'd alternate weekends between Huntsville and Atlanta, both of them fully on board with the other pursuing their careers. They were clearly a power couple. But when Jack needed an operation to manage his Crohn's disease in 1978, Betty couldn't stand the distance any longer. She moved back to Huntsville to help take care of him as he joked that the two of them together made one normal person. That's cute. This poor guy, Crohn's disease can be
1: a brutal gastrointestinal disease.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. But it wasn't long after that that they decided to get married. Having grown up in what she described as a lower-middle-class family, Betty quite enjoyed her extravagant new lifestyle. Jack bought her expensive jewelry like a Rolex watch and a Mercedes convertible. And, at least according to Betty, he turned a blind eye to Betty's indiscretions. Ooh, the plot thickens. It's not always rainbows and butterflies, as we say. Lollipops. Rainbows and lollipops. Well, as she tells it, Betty
1: and Jack felt that, as grown people, they could conduct themselves however they chose in the bedroom. As she put it, quote, yes, I had, air quotes, affairs, but I never cheated and neither did Jack, unquote. Spoiler alert, it does not work out.
0: We'll get back to their open arrangement later. This didn't seem to be an issue for Jack, but what was an issue in their marriage was Betty's drinking. She admitted that she'd long been a heavy drinker, but once she left her career to be a surgeon's wife you know, the different meetings and galas and charity benefits she was expected to attend her drinking went from zero to 60 quickly. Even a medical scare caused by her alcoholism only pumped the brakes for so long. Once she began drinking again after a two-year break, she went back to it harder than ever. Eventually, though, Betty realized she was destroying her life and Jack's. He told her once that he used to hope she'd pass out quickly when she was on a bender so he wouldn't have to put up with her argumentative attitude. She started going to Alcoholics Anonymous and really found a community there. It actually saved her life and relationships with friends and family. Which brings us to family. Like I said at the top, she and Jack each had three children from previous marriages. In addition, Betty had three siblings of her own, one of whom was her twin, Peggy. Does it feel like we can't get away from twins? I guess so. We got away from it last week, but it's just coming back to haunt us again. At least these two fraternal twins,
1: not identical, who were born on July 14th, 1945 are actually somewhat different. In high school, Peggy was a homecoming queen while Betty was on student council and performed in plays and talent shows. They were both popular and married their first husbands right out of high school, had kids, but both divorced within a few years. In our story, though, they are both in their second marriages.
0: Peggy worked as a first-grade teacher and, like Betty, she was an attractive, kind-hearted, sociable person. Peggy was a sweet Southern lady of God. She was married to a Baptist deacon and sang in the church choir. So, why are we talking about a bunch of nice, fun, friendly people on this show? This is how it always starts. Every single time. Well, on May 22, 1992... Betty was coming home from shopping and an AA meeting. She had a lot to do to get ready for a trip she and Jack were going on the next day to Santa Fe, New Mexico. But when she walked up the stairs of their brick mansion, she discovered 55-year-old Jack's lifeless body in the doorway to their bedroom, blood covering the floor. Betty fled to the neighbor's house to call the police. When investigators arrived, they found a bloodied metal baseball bat in the hallway, just feet away from Jack's body. They also discovered puncture wounds in his head, abdomen, and arms, a fractured skull and hyoid bone, and defensive wounds, including a broken arm and fractured shoulder. What they didn't discover, however, were any fingerprints that didn't already belong in the house. In the bedroom, a green ski mask sat on the bed and a gun registered to Betty was missing. It didn't take long for the Huntsville police to start pointing fingers at Jack's wife, Betty. They thought it was suspicious that Betty and Jack had separate bedrooms. The police were also aware of Betty's, air quotes, popularity with the men around town, and they heard some gossip that Betty thought Jack's colostomy bag from that surgery years prior was disgusting. I'd like to interject at this point, though. That Betty had been a nurse
1: and agreed to marry him after the surgery. She was well aware, going into the marriage, what a colostomy bag entails. Also, to note, this was obviously not a robbery. Jack's wallet
0: was on the floor and nothing had been taken. Don't worry, we'll have time to go through all of this. But in the meantime, while the police liked Betty for the murder, they couldn't mount a solid case. She had a solid alibi. She'd been at AA that evening, and there was no other evidence to suggest that she'd been the one to murder Jack. As a matter of fact, neighbors had seen Jack outside that evening hammering a political sign in his yard while she was gone. But they couldn't let go of Betty's extramarital sex life, their separate bedrooms, or the fact that Jack was worth around $6 million. So when a police informant came forward a couple of days later to say they'd overheard a man say he'd been hired to kill a doctor in Huntsville, the police were quick to bring Betty in for questioning. And who was this man? Enter James White, a 41-year-old handyman. With a long track record including a dishonorable discharge from the military, child molestation, drug use, and much more, James was described by one reporter as a dirty man with ungroomed hair and bad teeth. He suffered from auditory and visual hallucinations frequently. This will be important later. Detectives found Betty's registered gun and a book of poetry from the library that had been signed out by Betty in an abandoned house next door to James's trailer. Super suspicious. They also found shoes in James's Vincent, Alabama trailer that had blood on them that matched Jack's blood type. But how in the world would the wife of a prominent eye surgeon come to know such a degenerate man? Let's take a quick break before discussing the connection between James White and Betty Wilson.
2: Are you planning an event with audio and visual needs but are not sure where to start? Waves Entertainment can help. Waves Entertainment is your premier full-service management company with high-quality custom solutions for any size event. Whether you are planning a large festival or concert, a corporate meeting or wedding, Waves Entertainment will power your event to excellence. Our team of industry professionals work closely with your vision to ensure your audience hears every word, sees every detail, and remembers the experience. Our goal is to ensure your event is customized to fit your needs and provide professional-grade equipment to amplify your message. From live stage production and talent booking to vendor coordination, event staffing, and more, Waves Entertainment is your one-stop shop for the perfect event. Visit our website, wavesentertainment.com, or give us a call at 704-662-2435. That's 704-662-2435. Waves Entertainment, powering your event to excellence.
1: Now back to the show. All right, so let's hear it. How could James White and Betty Wilson possibly be connected?
0: Well, James was a handyman and janitor at an elementary school the same elementary school where Peggy, Betty's twin sister, worked. And as the police began to question James, he said that he and Peggy had been carrying on a long affair and that Peggy and Betty had approached him with $5,000 to kill Jack. According to James, Betty had given him her gun and put the money she owed him in that library book to hand it off secretly. She was waiting for him outside the house and drove him back to his trailer after he'd murdered Jack. Of course, these allegations came with the promise of a lighter sentence for James. He would plead guilty to murder and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole in just seven years. James would testify that on the day of the murder, he'd hidden in the house with the gun, which he'd already decided he wasn't going to use. Not long before Jack arrived home, James decided he didn't want to kill anyone, but it was too late. Jack had already discovered him, and in the ensuing tussle in the upstairs hallway, James beat Jack with a bat and stabbed him before running down to Betty's waiting car. Investigators found no sign of James in Betty's car, not even a hair, but that didn't stop prosecutors from insisting Betty had an equal hand in Jack's murder. James, Betty, and Peggy were
1: all charged and each given their own trial. Peggy made bail,
0: however, Betty did not. In Betty's trial, the prosecution argued that Betty found Jack's colostomy bag repulsive and was running around on him as a result. The prosecution called just one of her former lovers, despite the fact that she'd been forthcoming about each of them. All of them but one lived in the general area, with this singled-out lover being brought in from California specifically for this trial. Errol Fitzpatrick took the stand to testify about their relationship, and immediately, the early 1990s Alabama jury was influenced to convict her. You see, Errol was a black man. Despite her defense lawyers, four of them— Objecting to the clear racial manipulation, the damage was already done. Did you know one of
1: her lawyers was Bobby Lee Cook, who was the inspiration for the show Matlock with Andy Griffith? I did not. Interesting. That is interesting. Well, coupled with a media frenzy around this case, we've got sex, money, beautiful Southern Bells. Betty didn't stand a chance the jury deliberated for two days before finding her guilty of capital murder and convicting her to life without
0: the possibility of parole. And then it was Peggy's turn. Peggy didn't suffer from the same character assassination as Betty, with the prosecution going so far as to complain that trying to convict her was like trying to convict God. While Betty was essentially an evil incarnate in the eyes of the media, Peggy was a compassionate angel who wouldn't hurt a fly. Her husband and daughters and son took to the stand in her defense, and her fellow churchgoers stood vigil at the courthouse, some with signs reading, Free Peggy Lowe. Looking at Peggy
1: and at James White, there's no way to imagine the two of them becoming involved romantically. We'll post pictures. So the story James tells is a farce from the start, I think.
0: Well, her jury agreed. In three short hours, they found Peggy not guilty of conspiracy to murder Jack Wilson. But really, one sister can't be guilty without the other, now can they? So let's dive into some of the inconsistencies in the case here. First, Betty wrote in a magazine called The Old Huntsville that, in the weeks prior to the murder, she wanted to replace the screen doors on the house. Peggy suggested the janitor that she knew could do it, as she'd seen some other carpentry work he'd done and was impressed with his craftsmanship. So that's the initial connection between James and Betty. Betty goes on to write that she'd waited on James to come to her house for hours and just chalked up his lateness to typical contractor behavior and left a note for him on the door so she could continue on with her day. Later, when he was contrite for missing the appointment, Peggy convinced Betty to give him another chance. He struggled with alcoholism, she told Betty, and Betty knew all about that battle. James was broke and could really use the work, even telling Peggy he might kill himself if things didn't get better. Betty gave in and let him know that she was headed to an AA weekend retreat nearby and that she'd leave him half the money he needed to do those screen doors in a book under the seat of her car at the lodge. The guards at the lodge wouldn't let James access the car, so Betty went out and handed it to him with the money inside. That's how the library book got in James's possession, At least according to Betty. She then wrote that after James ran off with her money without doing the job, she called him up to chew him out. They spoke on the phone a couple more times, with each conversation ending with Betty cursing out James for conning her. Then that fateful Friday, May 22nd, arrived. So let's remember that James knew where the Wilsons lived and was a mentally ill alcoholic that knew the woman of the house was furious with him. And what about Peggy? Right. James said that the two of them had multiple sexual encounters. That court reporter said that James was unkempt, with rotting teeth and unwashed hair. Sure, the heart wants what the heart wants, but what's the likelihood that a happily married woman would take up with a mentally unstable janitor with his teeth rotting out of his head and greasy hair? However, by the time Peggy's trial rolled around, James's defense team had helped him get some dental work and look more presentable. We can only assume he'd had to use a public defender, so where did the money come from for his upgrade? Suspish. For sure. Regardless, it's not like James was the most reliable witness. he changed his story multiple times, and according to the documentary Finding Betty, when he'd asked the police to turn off the tape recorder, they would. So there were affidavits he signed that said one thing, recorded statements that said another, statements made to police that were never recorded, and inconsistencies between each. But one reality is that he avoided the electric chair by pointing the finger at Betty and Peggy. Another important thing to note is that James never accurately described what Betty looked like until much later. See, as we mentioned before, Peggy and Betty were fraternal twins. While both were attractive women with dark hair, they didn't look identical. Of course, James knew Peggy, but if he'd been picked up by Betty on the day of the murder, then he would have been able to describe her.
1: That's not the only time James said he'd seen Betty either. He claimed she gave him the gun two days earlier, and that he decided not to use the gun because of his negative experience during the Vietnam War. But it would be awfully stupid to give your hitman
0: a gun that's registered in your own name. Right. So now that we're talking about the gun, let's talk about the other weapon in the house, that metal baseball bat. In Betty's trial, the medical examiner said that the bat could have been the murder weapon. But upon further examination for Peggy's trial, another medical examiner noted that there were no pieces of hair or skull on the bat, which is inconsistent with the metal bat being used to bludgeon someone's head in. Instead, it seemed to him that the bat had been smeared or rubbed down with blood. In addition, Jack's head wasn't crushed in, which you'd expect if a bat was used. Looking at some of the photos is giving me deja vu. To me, they remind me of the staircase. Oh, and the infamous owl theory.
1: That case was practically in our backyard. And by the way, Michael Peterson is guilty.
0: I think I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about the contested case of Kathleen Peterson's death in Durham, North Carolina in 2001 which has been publicized by HBO and Netflix specials that are both called The Staircase. The lacerations on Kathleen's head when she was found dead at the bottom of the staircase in her home were blamed on an owl for years. We can't get into that case fully now, but another popular theory is that the lacerations, which look just like the lacerations on Jack Wilson, were caused by a fireplace poker. Now, I don't know the significance of using a poker instead of the bat and then trying to make it look like the bat was used. The only thing I can say is that James admitted to being in the house and admitted to attacking Jack, and along with that admission, he said he'd taken pills and drank heavily, so he blacked out during the attack. Maybe in his drugged-out stupor, he just rubbed blood on the bat? Well, we don't like
1: to get into too much speculation here. But it certainly is odd. It's also odd that a poker or another stabbing weapon was never retrieved.
0: And what about the money? We mentioned Jack was worth about six million. James claimed the twins paid him $5,000 to kill Jack. Not only could no bank records indicate any sort of transaction between James and the women, but let's think about it for a moment who would risk the electric chair for a $5,000 hitman? If Betty was as unhappy as the prosecution and James wanted to say she was, she could have divorced Jack and probably gotten a pretty hefty payout. And why would Peggy risk her own life and her own family for the same? In addition, Finding Betty points out that a few months before the murder, Jack tried to get the amount of his life insurance payout raised. Betty never signed the documents. If she hadn't been convicted of his murder— she would have received less money than he intended for her to have because she didn't sign. We've seen a lot of cases of a life insurance policy being the nail in the coffin for murderers, but this time it seems to help Betty's case. Even if the $6 million wasn't Betty's motivation, there are a few other details that don't make sense. She was trained as a nurse. It seems to me that she could have come up with a better way to kill Jack than to leave it in the hands of James White. Not only that, but he was murdered before their vacation to Santa Fe. Why plan a vacation at all? Most of the time with a murder-for-hire situation, the offending spouse arranges to be out of town. Betty was simply at an AA meeting. So let's recap. James White was a mentally unstable criminal who needed money and was unable to keep his story straight about how he killed Jack Wilson. He even tried to recant his testimony from his trial at one point, saying that the officers had coached him on what to say. He admitted that Peggy and Betty had nothing to do with Jack's murder and that he wanted to make things right. The evening that his recantation was to be made official, according to Betty on Finding Betty, the original prosecutor and lead detective on the case went to James and threatened him with the electric chair, for perjuring himself if he went through with the recantation. With a man
1: like that, a known con man with a drug and alcohol problem, and an
0: incentive to get out of jail, which version do you believe? It's hard to say, right? Right. In Finding Betty, documentarian Gene Rollins Adams Jr. posits that Betty was made an example of by Huntsville police because she was a white woman married to a high-profile white man and had carried on an affair with the black man. His theory stems not only from all of the inconsistencies in the case, but also from the fact that the KKK had extremely strong ties to the Huntsville area. In a particularly graphic moment in the documentary, it's revealed that a guard had approached Betty's cell while she was awaiting trial and said, quote, Any rich bitch that would fuck a N word deserves to die. Unquote so the racial bias and bigotry certainly wasn't a secret. I'm curious to know which version our listeners believe. Did twins Betty and Peggy conspire to have Betty's husband murdered? Or did the police help James White create a story to send Betty to prison for life? Either way, justice for Jack hasn't been served. If you believe Betty and Peggy are guilty, then the fact that Peggy hasn't spent a single night in prison is a grave injustice. If Betty had nothing to do with his death, then her life sentence is a grave injustice. Both Betty and James are still behind bars as of this recording. Betty, who is now 78, is serving her sentence at the Julia Tutwiler Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama. Tutwiler is a maximum security prison that was named one of America's 10 worst prisons by Mother Jones in 2013. From 2009 through 2011, six Tutwiler employees were indicted on charges of custodial sexual misconduct or custodial sexual abuse. James is serving his time at Limestone Correctional Facility. Although each were found guilty, only two have served time. Please let us know what you think. Should Peggy have served time as well? Do you think Betty was just a gold digger? Peggy later stated that her jury got it right, and Betty's jury got it wrong, proclaiming Betty's innocence. There is a free Betty Wilson project. Finding Betty documentary is a four-year passion project by Gene Adam Jr., an independent African-American filmmaker. The film argues Betty Wilson was wrongly convicted of murder conspiracy involving the death of her husband in May 1992. The 80-minute documentary calls for Wilson to be set free and has a step-by-step examination of what it calls holes in the prosecution's case. The documentary presents graphic photos of the crime scene and makes use of recreations to enhance the understanding of the trial. Adams said he hopes the movie will be a driving force for Wilson's acquittal. Finding Betty is available on YouTube TV, Apple TV, and Amazon Prime Video. Evidently, people can actually email Betty directly, and that's all I have to say about that. Are you getting ready
1: to email her? No. Because I would like to ask her, did you do this or not? So, more than 10 years after the murder, the home's new owner made a discovery. Scott McDermott, co-owner of Huntsville Coldwell Banker Premier Office, was making renovations to his home when he found the propane lines had been tampered with. Could it have been Dr. Jack Wilson's intended method of death? Scott McDermott thinks so. Quote, the house has such a history as far as being known by everybody. Everybody knows the house. Everybody knows its history. Unquote. McDermott recently ordered a new propane tank, but before they physically connected it to the house, they had to pressure test it to make sure there wasn't any leaks where they put it in the new gas logs. When they put pressure on it, they couldn't get the gas lines to hold any pressure whatsoever. That, of course, meant a leak. Heating and cooling workers traced it to a space in the upstairs master bedroom behind the wall near the bed, which was a hidden fireplace that McDermott didn't even know about, and the cap for the propane tank line had been removed. Quote, the only way it could have been done is have someone do it physically on purpose, unquote. McDermott and the heating and cooling workers took the uncapped propane valve off the hidden fireplace and secured it as evidence. He theorizes Betty Wilson and James White may have attempted to kill her husband by this method, but the plan didn't work and a backup plan was carried out. An open propane line can ultimately cause an explosion. Knowing the history of the house, McDermott put his new discovery in the context of the Betty Wilson murder case. That said, he took his finding to the lead investigator who worked the case back in 1992. He said, quote, I called the police with the intent of letting them know what I had found with the question of did they have any need for the actual piece? The short answer? According to lead investigator at the time of the murder, Mickey Brantley, no, police do not need the uncapped propane valve for anything. He said, quote, from a legal standpoint, there's nothing we can do. As far as we know, Scott McDermott is the first owner since the Wilsons. However, many people have been in and out of this famed house. Oh, great. How far is that drive? I think you've been to Huntsville, Alabama. I have. Not too
0: far, I but it's I, don't, far enough to... I don't think Scott McDermott's going to let us in. So. No, he might not. All right, well, let's finalize this case with enmeshment. In 2006, Betty snagged herself a new husband, a former Green Beret named Bill Campbell, who had become fascinated by her plight after watching a 48 Hours episode about the case. They had a traditional wedding ceremony, although the wedding cake had to be sliced before it was allowed in the prison. Understandable. <sighs> by the way, Alabama does not allow conjugal visits. Oh, bummer. Don't get caught in Alabama. Right. Betty's twin, Peggy Peck, evidently after she remarried a University of Alabama professor, was maid of honor at Betty's jailhouse wedding. I went to high school with that Peggy Peck. Uh-oh. Might want to look into that. Today, in addition to the support of her newest husband, Betty has the comfort of knowing that the murder and its aftermath didn't drive a wedge between her and her sister even when they both faced the prospect of Alabama's electric chair and police falsely told each of them that the other had blamed her. Well, there you go. Close-knit family for sure.
1: Well, I hope Betty lives happily ever after. Well,
0: what do you think? We didn't share our thoughts. What do you think? Well, I think it's clear that James is guilty. I don't think there's any question about that. Correct. As far as Betty and Peggy, it's hard to say.
1: I did see her on 48 Hours, by the way. She does her makeup better in jail than I do on any given day. It's amazing. But I'm gonna say guilty. Peggy, not so much.
0: Yeah, Peggy, I don't know. I don't know about Peggy, because James... How did James get introduced to Betty without Peggy, you know? Right. I mean, there is that connection. There's that. And Peggy still
1: is standing up for her sister's innocence, so. Well, they are twins. Enmeshment. Right. Well, again, we're only presenting the information that we've researched. So, but I kind of go with my gut feeling sometimes. I'm going to go guilty.
0: Same. And just thinking about it a little bit, here's where my mind is stuck. You know, I have that scientific analytical brain, and this is what I've been thinking this whole time. James was going to do work at Betty and Jack's house, but Betty pissed him off. Why did he go after Jack? You know what I'm saying? Right. Why Jack? Right. Why not Betty? Correct. So that's my holdup on this case. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. I want to hear your theories.
1: Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Please join us next week for a new episode of Enmeshed.
0: But before we let you go, your girls over here got another five star review. Woohoo! Woohoo! Shout out to Brooke G. She said, Great podcast. They are one of the podcasts that give you what you are listening for and get to the facts while still incorporating personality. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Brooke.
1: And remember, everybody, don't conform to the unhealthy
0: family norm. Y'all. Thank you for listening. All of our sources are in today's show notes. You can find us at Enmeshed underscore True Crime Podcast on Instagram, Enmeshed True Crime Podcast on Facebook, or at Enmeshed13 on X, formerly known as Twitter. You can also get a behind-the-scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships. Enmeshed is an Oh No production. Oh no.